Welcome back to another edition of the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I'm an automotive columnist for Bay Area News Group, and I edit and publish the website, theweeklydriver.com. My friend and co-host now for 170-something episodes is Bruce Aldrich, and today we have on an author uh, written a fascinating book. Um, Welcome to our podcast, John Orovitz. And John has written a book that's um, about to be published, and it's called Indie Splits. And it's um, promoted as a fascinating, authoritative, and overdue account of the big money battle that nearly destroyed indie car racing. Um, welcome to our podcast, John. We can't wait to jump into your expertise, and we want to let people know that you live um, a stone's throw from uh, Turn 1 in Indianapolis. So welcome to our podcast. Thanks for being available. Well, that, that's true, what you just said there, James. Thank you, and, and hello to you, too, as well, Bruce. Yes. Uh, if there were cars running at the Speedway today, uh, if I stepped out onto my front porch, you'd be able to hear them, especially if they were running on the road course, because when the wind blows that way, I get, for whatever reason, the, the, the road course sounds waft over in, in my house's direction uh, better than when they're on the oval. That's great. Um, John, let's start off with an overview. Why... Did you determine uh, that this was an important book to write? And at this time, uh, how did you time it? So, um, you know, this ever-changing automotive space that we're in with all kinds of racing series and people of interest in all different kinds of racing. Why is your important book important at this time? Well, the timing is purely coincidental in the sense that this month of May of 2021 marks the 25th anniversary of the what many consider the focal point of the IndyCar split, which was May of 1996 when the Indy Racing League ran the Indianapolis 500 for the first time under its own uh, umbrella. And the established stars of IndyCar racing that raced in the CART World Series uh, staged a competing 500-mile race at Michigan Speedway. Um, I actually started on this project in 2017 I actually technically started on it years before that when I wrote a 10-part series for ESPN.com documenting the 100-year history of the Indianapolis 500 to that point. And in 2017, I kind of used that as a jump-off point. Um, You know, I realized that there had never been a credible book written about the split, and I think anybody who's followed IndyCar racing over the last 50 years honestly knows that, that the split or, or elements of it, what essentially started in the 1970s as, as CART breaking away from the United States Auto Club and was reignited in the 90s as CART versus IRL. It's the defining and most important story in IndyCar racing uh, in the last half century. I'm surprised that, uh, that it was not documented in a, in a serious manner by, um, by an industry insider before this. And I looked at it as a huge responsibility. It's uh, People still talk about it. And if you look at the reaction of this book since it's been announced, uh, the split, especially the CART versus IRL era of 1996 to 2008, which is kind of the focal point of the book, um, it's still a very polarizing topic that, that brings out emotions in people. And I think that's just because of of the enormous impact that it had on every part of or every constituency of IndyCar racing, whether it was the fans, whether it was the participants, whether it was the media, uh, manufacturers, sponsors, what have you. It was just, um, it, it was an earth-shaking 
event or series of events uh, that honestly took place over decades and not just a period of a few years. And I think it was worth a historical uh, look back at. I do remember back in 96 when um, that first time when they had the competing race, like you mentioned in Michigan, and, and I, I didn't understand what the heck was going on when you had a similar cars racing the same day. It made no sense to me. One of the people involved was uh, Tony George. Could you tell us, uh, the listeners, who Tony George was? And I'm sure he was he was instrumental in this split, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, and as I mentioned, the, you know, the book focuses on what people think of as the card IRL split. But the story, if you really want to take it back to day zero, you have to take it back to when Tony George's grandfather, Tony Holman, bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1945 because the Holman family, they didn't set out to, to run IndyCar racing or anything. They set out to preserve the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and preserve the history and tradition of the Indianapolis 500. But as events unfolded over the 50s and the and 60s and the ensuing decades, the Holman family uh, became the de facto power managers of IndyCar racing in the same way that the France family ran NASCAR. Yes. The Holman, Tony Holman formed the United States Auto Club in 1956, and, and USAC and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway were intertwined. They were separate entities, but they were definitely linked together uh, in an inseparable way. Uh, there was a changing of the guard in the 60s. You had rear-engine cars coming in with, with Lotus and later McLaren and Lola and, and teams like that, and it was a different philosophy, and through the 60s and 70s, the sport changed. It experimented with road racing. They took dirt out of the equation, and it, it reached a point in the late 70s where we're not happy with the status quo. That is what established the original CART-USAC split in 1978 and 79, but right before that, Tony Holman, the you know the, the grand poobah of all of this, he died in late 1977. Okay. Tony George, his grandson, there was not a direct link to him through the family. Uh, but when Tony George, the grandson, turned 30 in 1989, he was essentially given the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Tony George raced occasionally in the 80s, some road racing, some oval racing. But he, along with advice from people like A.J. Foyt and Bill France and Bernie Ecclestone, Tony George felt that he and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway deserved a greater position of power in the overall government of IndyCar racing. And the original 1978 split was about the government of IndyCar racing, and, and CART wanted to take over some aspects, mainly the marketing and promotion of the sport from USAC. Tony George offered to restructure the sport in the early 90s, and he was rebuffed by the, the cart management cart was a consortium of team owners and there was just a lack of respect from the cart team owners toward tony george who was in his early 30s he was kind of wet behind the ears as a businessman and everything and he kind of came in wielding a big stick i don't think tony george respected what cart did for indycar racing in the 80s which was to take it from kind of this backwater 10 or 12 races on ovals with zero attendance and everything in the 70s into a, a series that by the mid-90s was established worldwide with high-technology cars and a worldwide audience and a great mix of drivers and 
from the U.S., traditional IndyCar racing, the Unsers, the Andrettis, Rick Mears, Bob, uh, Danny Sullivan, along with a foreign flavor, Nigel Mansell, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jill DeFerrin, and people like that. So there was this lack of respect from both sides. There was this philosophical clash between oval racing and cheap, low technology and and more of a high-tech international uh, flavor. And, and it culminated in, in Tony George deciding that he wanted to use the Indianapolis 500 to take the sport back to his vision for it, which was lower costs and, and all ovals for the time being. And that was, in, in essence, that was the, the split of 1996. The, the issues that formed in the 60s and 70s that resulted in the first split between CART and USAC were never really resolved. And when Tony George, the next generation of the Holman family, came in, uh, he attempted to resolve them. And when CART didn't want to resolve them his way, he tried to do it his own way. And what it resulted in was the formation of the IRL uh, and, and the transformation of the Indy 500 into something that had been part of the CART series for the last 15 years uh, into something new and different um, that didn't really go all that well at first. Yes. We're... we're- IRL cars uh, much different from the cart cars at the time for that, what is it, a 10-year period? Or were they exact same spec? So the IRL was a little slow to gain traction when Tony announced it. And so their original plan to have their own cars for the first season was, was cut off, and they didn't introduce their own cars until 97. So when the dueling 96 races ran, they were... Basically, they were running the same car, okay. which was part of the confusion because there wasn't a difference. The IRL car that was introduced in 1997, it, it was visually different. It, had, it was bigger. It was boxier. Um, it was kind of simple and crude looking. It was built to a price, and it showed. Um, whereas, uh, and maybe the biggest difference was the way it sounded. Um, you know, Tony wanted to have less expensive engines than the, than the racing turbo V8s that were in the card series that, that were offered under leases instead of just going out and buying your own parts and building them yourself. He wanted to go back to that own self-building engine culture. The IRL car had a very different sound. It was, it sounded like a stock car. It was a room instead of a meow. <laughs> okay. Uh, well said. And, and so, you know, <laughs> So it, it was really, you know, it was almost more jarring to your ears than it was to your eyes. Um, but in general, you know, one of the neat things that I thought about the kart series in the 80s and the 90s is that the cars did get more sophisticated and they did get sleeker and more Formula One technology did migrate into the series. And yes, that made it more expensive. But in those days, they had sponsorship and participation to justify it. And, and the IRL cars were a slap in the face because they were, you know, like I said, they had, you know, simple wings and you weren't, the teams weren't allowed to modify them or change anything. Um, it, it was, I mean, it was a lot of taking a lot of NASCAR's approach to managing competition was brought to IndyCar racing. And I think that that rubbed a lot of purists the wrong way. One of the great things about CART in its heyday was it did have this great competition between four or five chassis manufacturers and two different brands of tires and four different engine manufacturers. And, and so in its heyday, the, the key was to pick the right combination of engine and chassis and tires. And of course, then on top of that, you had to have great drivers and strategy and pit stops. So, um, but it, it, it had the economy to just to, to sustain that type of uh, 
multi-manufacturer marketplace for, for a number of years. I think you mentioned that uh, the, the split in 96, IRL lost, CART lost, um, the fans lost, they had to take a side, and the one winner was NASCAR. Yeah, I mean, everybody from Mario Andretti to, to whoever will tell you that. And, um, you know, it's it, the confusion and the animosity that, that the split created among the IndyCar fan base, especially, you know, Tony George wanted to emphasize the American part of it and bring up the short track stars. And when the IRL really didn't do that in its first few years, I mean, yes, it did produce Tony Stewart, um, but nobody else really, you know, became that, that American short track star they were hoping for. And a lot of those fans realized that they kind of woke up to the fact that those were the guys that were going to NASCAR in the nineties, whether it was Jeff Gordon, whether it was Kenny Irwin, whether it was Ryan Newman or whoever. And I think a lot of the IndyCar fan base during this split period, especially the ones that gravitated toward the American or traditional, you know, oval, the, the, the values that Tony George wanted to increase for the IRL. I think when, when the fan base didn't see that happening for the IRL, um, they just kind of naturally followed those guys to NASCAR and, and really gave the NASCAR uh, situation a huge boost. Um, you know, between IndyCar losing all these fans to NASCAR in the second half of the 90s and then Dale Earnhardt getting killed in 2001, NASCAR just had this enormous explosion in popularity uh, that finally peaked in 2005 and six. Sure it did. What do you think of uh, the NASCAR champion uh, Jimmy Johnson going to... Uh Back to IndyCars. Not back to, but I think over a, to IndyCars. Well, it's a fantastic story for IndyCar racing. Um, I, I think that, I hope fans keep their expectations in check because we got, he's going to struggle to qualify in the top 20 and, and finish in the top 10. But you've got to hand it to him. I mean, what a brave move for a guy that's accomplished. You know, he, he's a legend in American racing, but maybe one of the reasons that Jimmy Johnson went to NASCAR when he did in the first place, he grew up idolizing Rick Mears and, and wanting to race Indy cars. And maybe one of the reasons that he didn't do it is because Indy car racing wasn't particularly healthy in the late nineties when he was in a position to, to make that career move. So maybe it's some, you know, some unfinished career goals for him. Um, I, I really can't applaud the guy enough for trying it. Um, it, it takes an extraordinary amount of bravery to step into one of the most competitive auto racing series in the world as a 45 year old rookie, uh, especially, in, and we've seen it's, it's more difficult to go from a, a slower, heavier car to a faster, more nimble car. And I would he, think. he's going to, he's going to have some eye opening couple few races here. And, and I think eventually we'll see him in the Indy 500. I hope next year that he's, he's already kind of softening his stance on it a little bit. And I think being closer to the environment and having a greater understanding about the cars and the safety of, the series and the tracks and everything, especially with the arrow screen on the cars now. Um, and that's a great, it's a great PR boost for the series to see a, yeah, a, a popular guy like that. Give it a shot. John, uh, going back many years, I'm listening to you speak about the iconic names. I was, my eyes were really open back in the mid eighties and I had a chance to go to Sonoma raceway. Uh, now it became Infineon and I don't know the name of it now. Is it back to being Sonoma? And then of course, uh, Laguna Seca. Point no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, point. Really. Thank you. Aging no, myself it is here. Sonoma Raceway. Sonoma Raceway. Thank you. And then 
um, to uh, Laguna Seca, and um, I was a young reporter, and I got a chance to go to a press conference, and I think that there were f- maybe four or five reporters, and sitting in front of us were Bobby Rahal and Little Al and Danny Sullivan and maybe another driver, and I was just taken aback uh, of how c- calm, cool, and collected these guys were and just th- thoroughly enjoying um even even as a, a rookie asking very dumb questions, they didn't they didn't insult me. They didn't they didn't their egos didn't get in the way at all, and I it, the sport won me over. And then I got to report on the event, and that then it really won me over. Um, does indie car racing uh, still have it in that for the lay public? Is it still the top race if you've never watched a race before and you just happen to turn on the television or? Has NASCAR overtaken it um, in terms of just being um, the most prominent motorsports event? What What are your thoughts on that? I think it kind of depends on what you're looking for. If If you want to spend one afternoon of your year on what is still the biggest and most important auto race in the world, it is still the Indianapolis 500. Yes, they kind of they kind of flirted with throwing that status away in the late nineties, but it, it held together. And, and, you know, the fact that the split ended and the fact that they had some significant milestone anniversaries with the Indianapolis motor speedway and the Indy 500 to celebrate really gave it a boost. And I mean, you could say for a while that the Indy 500 was the number three race at the speedway behind the Brickyard 400 and the formula one race that they hosted there for seven or eight years. Yes. But I think if you're a race fan, especially and, and one thing about the Indy 500, I mean, certainly if, if you're a, if you're a casual observer and you want to go just attend one race and just to see what it's all about, there's no question you want to do the Indy 500 just because of all the pomp and the pageantry and everything that, that precedes the race. Um, the greatest thing about the 500 and, and ultimately what probably uh, was the, the factor that helped the IRS the war even even though uh it shouldn't have uh on the surface is the fact that the indianapolis 500 has this history and it has this prestige and it has this mystique um it's still i mean on race day they get close to 300,000 people inside that place or they didn't last year obviously there were no fans there and and who knows how many they'll have this year but in a normal circumstance, even in a down year, the 500 had 200,000 fans at it. And on a good year, it has 350,000 fans. That's an amazing. Yes. And, and, and the atmosphere is just, it's unmatched. I mean, I've been to the Daytona 500. I've been to nearly 500 IndyCar races over the years and several hundred NASCAR, well, not several hundred, 100 NASCAR races probably. Uh, sports car races, Formula One races, and, and absolutely nothing matches race day at Indianapolis. I'm going to put it into some perspective. We, we read about in the fall when there's an Army-Navy football game or Oklahoma uh, has a big game against Michigan or something, and there's 100,000 people in the stands, and they pack it, and it's, as you years, it's the pomp and circumstance and the pageantry. But if you have triple that amount <laughs> watching an auto race, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. So thanks for that, um, that perspective on it. I, I also well, it's want, insane, and it's it's why I moved to Speedway so I could walk to work. <laughs> there, there, there you go. I wa- also wanted to touch on. Um, we've asked other authors with some of the subjects that you're covering, and the just the massive amount of information and history that you had to put together. 
Um, what is the what was the process like? Uh, I've asked others the same question. Bruce has heard me ask it several times. Did you use three three by five cards on a big side of your house wall somewhere? Or how did you? What was the process of putting all this information together and, and tackling an enormous uh, an enormous project? Well, the, the the preface to that question is that um, when the original cart USAC split occurred in 1979. I was 14 years old and I was just starting to get interested in IndyCar racing. Yes. And so I literally started studying this as it was happening in 1979. And I didn't start covering the sport professionally until 1993. But since then I've, you know, obviously I've put together my own near 30 year archive of reporting and participating in the sport. So what I, what I wanted to do with this is, is I wanted to separate talking to people in 2018 and having them, for the most part, commentate on what happened and why it happened and trying to weave it into the narrative. So what I did was I used contemporary media accounts. And I mean, I literally remember certain Robin Miller columns from the late 70s, you know, Speedway Purse, Million Dollar Crumbs and things like that. Yes. So... I used uh, newspapers.com as a fantastic research tool and, and of course, plenty of good old library research. And, and um, I used contemporary media reports to tell the story up until I was able to take over with my own reporting. And then to add some commentary, my initial goal was pretty lofty. I mean, my book ended up with 24 chapters, and I thought at, each, at the end of each chapter I'd have a person, 24 people, commentating on their life in IndyCar racing, and that got to be uh, unmanageable. Uh, plus, you know, not everybody wanted to talk about it either. Yes. Um, so, but what it, what has ended up happening is at the end of the book, I I have a series of perspectives from people from Ari Leyendyke to Chip Ganassi to Mario Andretti, Dario Franchitti, Andrew Craig. Uh, Dr. Steve Olvey, who was instrumental in, in safety advances, both medically and with the cars over the years. And I, I did modern day interviews with them and, and kind of ghost wrote them into a first person account of their life in IndyCar racing. And they had free reign to talk about whatever they wanted to. Um, you know, if they wanted to talk about the split and who they thought was responsible or why they were welcome to, other people uh, didn't want to get into that. But I think if you you know, if you read the whole narrative, I mean, I start with my own perspective and then I tell the story and then I have the perspective of these seven or eight other people at the end of the book. And I think it's a nice coda on the end of it that um, it, it was, you know, like I said to you guys earlier, I, it was a responsibility I took pretty seriously and not everybody's going to like it. And not everybody's going to agree with it because it's very polarizing. It's almost like being a Republican or a, or a Democrat. <laughs> Yes, um, that's pretty polarizing these days, yes. (laughs) Good example. But trust me, CART IRL was every bit as dirty and and mean and and, uh, divisive as Republican versus Democrats these days. And and that's why it's still an important story. And and the other important point to it all is is that, um, you know, the 96 split happened because the 79 split never got resolved. And I think that even though the 96 split ended in 2008, I really don't think that there was closure until the Holman family sold the Speedway to Roger Penske in in 2019 or essentially 2020. I think that was finally the the closure that 
people needed to get over the split and, you know, put it behind them and everything. It's, it, it's still, even though it's been 13 years, it still was casting a shadow in a, in a, in a big way. What do you think Roger Penske, is he going to be another Tony George and be a, you know, like a Bernie Eskelton from Formula One or what? Is he sitting back or do you know? Certainly for the time being, he's, he's hands off in terms of letting the management that he inherited with, uh, with IndyCar, with Jay Fry and Mark Miles and at, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with Doug Bowles, um, he's certainly willing to let them manage. Um, what Mr. Penske brought in was capital. The, the, the speedway had not, the investment, uh, and the upkeep had, had declined in recent years. Um, not, not to a noticeable point, but there's, there's a standard and there's a Penske standard and the speedway has been brought up to a Penske standard now. Oh, that's a good, which thing. is amazing for a, you yes. know, for a 110 year old facility. Um, but I think that he's, you know, obviously Roger Penske's hands-on in everything he does, but I think he's relatively hands-off in, in this. Um, he he had the opportunity to run the thing almost 50 years ago now. Um, you know, Roger Penske was, was one of the two or three key guys that formed CART back in the day in the late 70s. And I think there was a perception that, they didn't want Penske or Pat Patrick to lead the whole thing back in the day. And um, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that Penske had far bigger fish to fry than, than the, the IndyCar series or even the Speedway. I mean, if you look at it, the guy's got 65,000 employees and however many trillions his company does every year as, as the world's leading retailer or auto dealer. He's a busy guy. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, he didn't need to do this. Um, he, he, he didn't want to do it in the late 70s, um, but he, he's definitely the right guy for it and, or the right family because, let's face it, Roger's 84 years old and, and as, as 20 hour a day he, as he is, he's not going to go on forever. Um, but, it, 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 you know, he, he probably should have let it in the 70s, but didn't. Um, it's so it's, it's symbolic. I mean, people, people said he owned the speedway for years because he won there 18 times in the Indy 500. And now he literally bought it. I, I knew he was a car owner. I had not known that back in the seventies, he had uh, a hand in it. Oh yeah. He was one of the two, you know, Dan Gurney wrote a paper that kind of sparked interest in creating an owner's group very similar to what Bernie Ecclestone did in formula one that transformed formula one in the seventies. And the main thing Ecclestone did was take over the marketing and the TV rights. And that's mostly what cart wanted to do. Uh, they didn't want to break away from USAC. They just wanted to take over the promotion of the sport and USAC didn't agree. And the rest is history, but yeah, Penske and Pat Patrick and Dan Gurney, uh, Jim Hall to a lesser extent, Bob Fletcher, those, those were the key guys in, in the formation of cart. This is a little bit of a tangent here, uh, John, but have women who have been involved in the sport, um, were there any influences, whether it was Danica or, or people who preceded the women who preceded her, has, was that a factor in any of the split or is that uh, predate um, the women who were the pioneers in the Lynn sport? Lynn St. James. Yeah, Lynn St. James and, and others. Um, or is it, was it not a factor at all? 
not a factor at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one thing you can say about the Indy 500 is, is that it is a trailblazer. Uh, you mentioned Janet Guthrie, and, and yeah. the very first day I went to the Speedway as a 12-year-old was the day that Janet Guthrie qualified oh, great. for the first time in 1977. And that was huge because as early as, or as recently as 71 or 72, women were still not even allowed in the pits at Indianapolis. And, and uh, for a female competitor to be there and to qualify... Um, you know, it didn't open doors quickly. Lynn St. James was, um, the next woman to qualify and, um, she and Janet were both 40 years old, essentially by the time they raced, they were near the end of their careers. And then Danica came in 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 2005 and, um, you know, gave a brief publicity bump to it all. Yes. Um, but um, but no, the the one thing is is that the Indy 500 has a much greater track record of female participation um, than almost any other auto race in the world. I'm sure there are examples that, that I'm missing off the top of my head. But certainly since the early 90s, there has been a a, uh, a pretty consistent female presence in IndyCar in uh, the 500 and IndyCar racing. There's been as many as three or four drive female drivers racing at a time. But you know, let let's be honest. Um, it hasn't caught on. There's, there's not a line of girls out there beating down the door, trying to be race car drivers. No. Um, I know in, in, in our area, I say Northern California, it's really central California. I think uh, the end of the series at Laguna Seca this year is going to be an Indy car event and which obviously didn't have last year, but I thoroughly enjoy, um, going to that event this year is it going to be the season concluding race in the series this year? Do you recall, or is, am I off this year? There is, with the rescheduling of the Long Beach Grand Prix yes. to September, there is actually a, uh, a triple-header West Coast swing to end the season at Portland, Laguna Seca, and Long Beach. Gotcha. So I think it'll be fascinating to see how Long Beach um, fares with its September date and as the season finale. It's You know, I love they love... People love date equity. Roger Penske loves date equity, and Long Beach has been an April institution you know, for 45 years. But if, if this does well, it's enough of a prestigious event that it could serve really well as the season finale. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it goes just from a um, publicity perspective to see if they get good TV ratings and the like. Will you be attending those events? Well, I certainly hope so. One of the great highlights of the Long Beach weekend is uh, Jeremy Shaw, who runs... Um, the Team USA scholarship program for young drivers uh, hosts an event for the Road Racing Drivers Club at Long Beach every year, and they honor a, a great driver. And last year it was meant to be Rick Mears, and Rick Mears was my favorite IndyCar driver when I was a kid. Uh, I've gotten to attend most of the RRDC dinners honoring the likes of Parnelli Jones and Mario Andretti and, um, gosh, who else, Joel, George Fulmer, Emerson Fittipaldi, Roger Penske, Dan Gurney. And I really want to be in the house when, when Rick gets honored just because I've, I've got such fond memories of being a Rick Mears fan when I was a kid and, and fond memories of, of uh, just some great conversations I've had with him uh, during my career writing about the sport. Uh, you know, there's, there's nobody that's more friendly and approachable than Rick Mears. I remember, he was always a nice guy. How old would he be right now, if you recall? Uh, Rick Mears, I think, was born in 51, so he, he's got to be pushing 70 years old. He's okay. Early 50s, he was born. Uh, I still see a young kid. Yeah, me, oh, me I know, too. I, with know. That. I mean, I, I think, of, you know, when I when I think of Rick Mears, 
again, I, the first year I went to the race was 1978 and that was his rookie year. And he, he put it on the front row. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a great career. I don't have anywhere near, uh, the background, but I do recall Bobby Rahal inviting me in. I wanted to you know, talk to him about playing golf and, um, he, inv- uh, again, a young reporter and he invited me into his motorhome and he made me feel like we were best friends. He was just so pleasant and so nice. And, he asked somebody, go get James a sandwich and a, and a Coke. You know, we had this nice chat about golf. It was fantastic. So a lot of those guys, uh, the few that I've met, um, have just been gentlemen and, and made you feel right at ease, whether you knew anything about motorsports or not. So it was great. You know, whether it was I, – I, I wanted to, to be a, a reporter. I wanted to write about auto racing from the time I was a teenager and – the, the biggest, you know, yeah, it was neat to see the cars and stand trackside and everything. But for me, the, the most rewarding thing has been the people. Yes. Whether, you know, and, and not always just drivers or, you know, as, as Bobby Rahal is a former driver, but now a team owner. Yes. But, you know, engineers, uh, mechanics, even right down to, uh, you know, and I shouldn't say down to, but up to because we, we, we look up to them, but hospitality and, and, uh, the truckies as they call them in IndyCar racing, everybody, I think almost everybody you find that's working in auto racing, almost everybody is there for their love of the sport and their passion. And they're there because they want to be there. Um, it's not always glamorous. It's, it's sometimes long hours and it's not always great pay, but I think the one thing that drives everyone is, is their passion for the sport. And I think that's the one one thing that really makes the the IndyCar split such a compelling topic topic is because people are really passionate about IndyCar racing, and not only about that, but about their vision for what it is. And should it be oval tracks, or should it be American drivers, or road races, or turbos, or V8s or V6s? And 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 I think it's good that that people have that passion, and we may not always agree on what the sport should should be. Um, we, we at least agree that we love it and we want it to grow and succeed. Yes, that's a good comment. I, we want them to go fast, too. John, I'm, I'm curious, or, or I'm wondering, uh, in your book, Indie Splits, I have not seen the book, um, what kind of uh, photographs do you have, or do you? Well, it's, it's not a coffee table book. Um, my last book, which was called Time Flies, The History of PacWest Racing, which is the a team owned by a fellow called Bruce McCaw uh, that, that got Scott Dixon, who's now the six-time IndyCar champion. Scott Dixon's first win came for PacWest when he was 20 years old back in, in 2001. That book was, was you know, 400 pictures in, in 350 okay. pages. Um, for this book, the, the words, it, it's about the words. Oh, um, I agree. I just wonder. So there's so much history. We I have just... a, we have a 16-page plate of photos of about 40 photos in the center of the book, and uh, there's a picture to illustrate the opener to each chapter. So I guess there's a total of about 60 pictures overall. And you know, for me, the, it was one of the interesting things, actually, uh, was compiling the photo edit for the center spread because it's like, my gosh, how do you tell a story of 75 years in 16 pages or 40 pictures? But But hopefully we've done it, and we've managed to depict you know the important people and and the important technological developments in the cars and 
and make it so that if you are just flipping through the book at a bookstore and you use that age old technique of just flipping through the pictures, you could say, oh, I could get into this. There you well, go. I, I'm certainly get into the uh, the history, the the spoken word and um, written word. I, the written word would be yes. great, but yeah, I I would also like to see those photos. So yeah, that, that sounds great. John, this is best probably a perfect place to uh, to end our our latest episode of our podcast. But we want to remind people that uh, the title of your book is Indie Split, and it's from Octane Press, which. I'm assuming uh, it'll also be available on Amazon and the other locations, whether it's a, a physical bookstore, if there are any left, or online, uh, and it'll be available, I'm assuming, just prior to the Indy 500, and uh, what a fascinating, I can't wait to dig into it, because all of those names that we've talked about are just you know, fantastic um, people in the sport, whether they've won Indy or not, or multiple wins, it's just uh, going to be a fascinating look at the split of the sport and um, as a reporter I can't wait to, to dig into your reporting so thank you for being our guest today on, on the weekly uh, driver podcast we want to thank John Oriovitz and uh, can't wait to dig into your book thank you sir I thank both of you and uh, appreciate the time okay thank you John thank you John take care